0: This week on Hangar Talk, GA icons make it into the National Aviation Hall of Fame.
1: And the Civil Air Patrol taps federal funding for future training.
0: Also, UAVonics they made the finish line. And the
1: gamma numbers are looking pretty good.
0: All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's
1: do some Hangar Talk, Ian.
0: From
2: AOPA, your freedom to fly. This
0: is Hangar Talk. 1056, turn right heading final With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz,
1: this is Hangar Talk.
0: Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, uh, our guest this week, well known to both of us, uh, our friend and colleague, Tom Horn.
1: He is awesome, and he is our unofficial historian here at AOPA. And Ian, let our podcast listeners know what Tom's been up to.
0: Yeah, so he has spent most of the year, along with a lot of the media staff, producing a book about AOPA and general aviation history it's commemorating the 80th anniversary of AOPA, which is next year, 2019. And uh, the book is on sale now. Just Google AOPA history book, and uh, you'll be able to order from the AOPA store. And uh, I think it makes it a great gift, and it's a really cool book. We're all really proud of it incredible photography, and uh, just a really interesting story of GA through the past uh, eight decades.
1: Agreed. Freedom to Fly, Witness to History is a really pretty book and a great gift for the holiday season.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. So, hey, let's get into it. The National Aviation Hall of Fame, we don't talk a lot about this because, honestly, most of the time they're either military or uh, maybe commercial folks or designers, something like that. But um, some good friends this year got inducted to GA Icons.
1: You know. I really like the Kings. This is so cool that John and Martha King, uh, I feel like um, I'm part of their family. I don't know, Ian. I took my <laughs> private pilot. Uh, I took a lot of my private pilot input from their video series back in the day, and, and it was just, it was cool. I mean, they're just neat people to, uh, to teach, and, uh, you know, they have a really neat way of teaching, and they're just cool folks.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, they really are. They're two great people. They've got interesting stories. And, of course, they've taught just thousands and thousands and thousands of pilots to fly. It's just so neat to see them be honored like this.
1: It is. And just uh, not to get too deep in their background, but I I do recall them telling the story when they first started that they would actually go from city to city and have these these in-person seminars Mm -hmm. until they uh, adopted, you know, the thing called video. And then with the video, they were able to expose it to, to the masses more and more. And that's where I came in. I started learning in uh, in two thousand, and their videos. Some of the phraseology of the videos I still remember. From high to low, look out below. That's one of their th- one of their yeah, one of their sayings, yeah. and and there's several more. You
0: know. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's right. Yeah, great, great folks. Um, the rest of the class. Uh, some names you'll probably know: Pappy Boyington, um, the Black Sheep Squad leader and World War Two ace. Guy Bluford, a retired astronaut. Charlie Duke, uh, lots of folks know him, retired astronaut. Of course, the Kings. And then Catherine Stinson, another um, GA icon, part of the Stinson Aircraft Company family.
1: Wow, now that is a distinguished uh, aircraft company, and those Stinson aircraft are pretty cool. It's a neat, a neat tail dragger, that 108 model. I always kind of wanted one of those.
0: Yeah, they are very cool, very cool. So congrats, John and Martha, and um, really cool to see you there. So uh, we'll hope for some more GA guns there in the future. Sounds good. So uh, moving on, the Civil Air Patrol, uh, they recognize there is a pilot shortage coming. Uh, and, of course, the, the, both in the Air Force and commercially, um, big youth organization. And they're trying to tap into some federal funding, hopefully, to help solve the problem.
1: They are, Ian. Now, um, folks, uh, podcast listeners might recall that we've talked a little bit about the Civil Air Patrol before because they actually do take a part in a lot of the search and rescue missions at things like Hurricanes and Hurricane Florence and Hurricane Michael this year. They did actually play some key roles. Mm -hmm. And um, what is fixing to happen here is that they're tapping into some funding from the U.S. Air Force. The CAP is an Air Force auxiliary with 61,000 members and 560 aircraft. They do save about 82 lives annually, so they, they, they are a pretty important part of our you know emergency system so they're looking at 1 million dollars for cadet flight instruction 500,000 dollars pegged for STEM that science technology engineering and math support yeah 500,000 dollars for career exploration activities and another 400 grand for cadet orientation flights and that's a 2.4 million if my math is correct that's a pretty good chunk of change
0: yeah yeah that is really cool it's um it's such a good way for kids to get in to aviation and kind of Learn about it and get to experience it with a relatively low commitment. Um, it's, it's essentially a club uh, when you're a kid. It's a really great program. And, of course, when you're an adult, if you're a member, you get to fly at really discounted rates. So that's nice, too.
1: It's real good for, for adults. It's an all-volunteer operation. and um, And don't forget that they have some really popular summer and winter encampments for youth. And that teaches youth how to fly. They, they fly powered and non-powered aircraft. They also do some special leadership activities. And this is a kind of a cool thing. They teach leadership training. They teach a lot of skill building year-round, things that will make young people into good adults and stewards of the
0: environment and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Great point. So, hey, UAVionics, uh, we've talked about these folks. They've got that really cool um, beacon, wingtip-mounted, ADSB out- hardware that um, they had been saying from the beginning, oh, we're going to get an STC. And and a lot of folks were, uh, you know, kind of dubious of that. They're like, well, it's a really cool product, but, you know, we're never going to see it on certified airplanes.
1: Well, it turns out we are. I think this is the neatest thing. If I was, I'm not an aircraft owner right now, but if I was... I would jump out and, and get one of these. If I did not have ADS-B, I think it's the coolest thing, especially the price. And it just replaces you know the, the outside light on one of your wingtips. It's just a neat idea with a little built-in antenna. I mean, it's just cool. So it's really yeah. neat technology and a great way to go.
0: Yeah, it is. It is very cool. They Basically, they went through the non-TSO process, got an STC. Uh, so I think the list covers more than 270 airplanes, so chances are if you have, a, you know, especially a single-engine light aircraft, it's going to be on that list. And as we've talked about, and as you know, David, the, the Sky Beacon, one of the great benefits to that is uh, because it's just a wingtip light replacement, it's a really, really low cost of installation.
1: Exactly, and that's the one thing, as a, as a former aircraft owner, I was very sensitive to this, Ian. Whatever the price is of the piece of gear that you're going to put in your aircraft – I felt like when I was doing stuff to my AirCooper or my Mooney, you had to double it. If it was a radio, if it was some other special gear, if it, if it cost two grand to buy it, it cost two more grand to put it in. But this looks like a pretty simple deal to get installed. I think a lot of the, of the electrical wiring certainly is already there going to the wingtip uh, because of the strobes or the, or the position lighting. And it's just a, a very clean looking installation. It doesn't look real complicated at all. It looks like a couple of screws, and of course now you do have to test your ADS-B. yeah. And um, that's pretty that's pretty strict. In fact, I heard what I heard someone testing their ADSB out. I mean, I was I was on a flight yesterday coming back from First Flight Airport, and there were folks that were were you know running back and forth doing the mandatory testing.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and you know, that's a great point. Um, so as part of that right now, you are in many cases eligible for the FAA's five hundred dollar rebate. We talked about that I think last show. You know, that's gonna go a really long way towards one of these sky beacons or really any product, any especially the low cost products these days. So um really no reason not to get out equipped um if you haven't yet. Now the, another thing about these sky beacons that's really cool. They right now at least you know a lot of folks want ADSB in. Of course, that's the good part about ADSB for us and GA um, to be able to get that free traffic and weather. And at least for experimental, the the UAVionics folks have a opposite side wingtip for ADSB in. So if you're experimental and you want to put on the system for an
1: experimental, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's very cool. And they're also working on. Uh, maybe for people with uh, different kinds of nav lights or where installation is a little more complicated, they're working on a tail beacon. So you could uh, put it in place of, uh, you know, of a tail light as well.
1: That's cool. So that'll open up some other installations. If maybe there's some complexity with a certain aircraft model type, yeah. that would help out as well. But that's pretty cool. These guys it seems like they're on the ball. I'm I'm pretty happy to see them moving forward with this. And the sky beacon looks like a really neat device.
0: Yeah. 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 Right on. Hey, more good news coming out of the General Aviation Manufacturers Association, Gamma. Um, we always like to talk about the uh, the estimated, well, actually the reported shipments for the quarter. So Gamma released those about a week ago and um, things are looking really pretty good.
1: They are looking pretty good this year, Ian. And in a the, the news release, Gamma president uh, Pete Bunt said that he saw, quote unquote, upbeat trends, reflected uh, in the third quarter numbers. And that's that's kind of cool because it's one of the few times since the recession, he said, that, that we, quote-unquote, we've seen all segments up in shipment numbers. And that mm-hmm. uh, spells relief for general aviation. And it kind of shows that more people are getting involved in GA, or at least people are buying a new aircraft.
0: Yeah, it's true. So overall, I think this is the first time in a long time that we've seen, like you said, um, both for, uh, well, for all rotocraft, piston, and turbine deliveries were all up quarter over quarter. So third quarter this year to third quarter last year. Uh, one thing that's interesting about this, though, and this has been a trend, and it's really I think spells some maybe rougher times in the future is that billings are down.
1: You were talking about that the last time we talked about yeah. the numbers, that, that yeah. shipments were up but billings were down. So what does that mean? Does that mean that people are buying less expensive aircraft and more of them?
0: Yeah, bingo. So they're seeing, you know, from a numbers standpoint, uh, well, like Rotocraft's a great example. You know, you look at Bell's numbers. And uh, the five hundred five, their their lowest um, option entry, you know, the essentially the replacement for the Jet Ranger, they are producing a ton of those things, and so that that's good news for them, you know, they're they're making shipments. However, uh, you look at their bigger stuff, and they're not moving as many. So yeah, so
1: they sold, th- well, they sold thirty two uh, shipped thirty two of the five hundred five. Now so that was a new model introduced what last year or just this year?
0: Yeah, I think it was certified about about the end of last year, I think, with the FAA. Yeah.
1: So they, they're pushing those out pretty quickly. And yeah, that's a good point. That, 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 a lot of those, but hardly any of the of the bigger ones, I guess they've got a, a 429, they've got a 407. Um, so yeah, that that spells trouble for that. But um, it's still good to see some new technology. From that company,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and I think you know, anytime you're putting out more airplanes as an industry, it's a good thing, right? right. It's just that you know, when you're when you look at like a 505, or and, and every company has examples of this, you know, Piper doing a lot of trainers, that sort of thing. It's good. You you keep a workforce employed and things like that. However, from a profit margin standpoint, of course, all of the small airplanes are going to have lower margins, and so. It doesn't do a ton to help, I would say, our per unit problem that we've got in aviation, which is that, you know, when you're not producing a ton of units and when those units that you are producing are, are not huge on the profit margin scale, the prices are just going to continue to kind of go up. And
1: that is a, a big hindrance to a lot of folks trying to enter uh, general aviation, especially when you're looking at a new aircraft. And the Cessna 172 is a, a decent example of the fact that that's about a $400,000 aircraft now. Mm-hmm. Although mm-hmm. Textron is still pumping those out in pretty big numbers, just yeah, a FYI, you know, I took a quick, a quick peek at that. Thirty of the uh, 172s were shipped in this quarter, which is pretty strong. And also the Grand Caravan, they shipped 21 of those. That's pretty strong too.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that thing is just a well, <laughs> it's a workhorse for, for the company, like it is for its customers. I mean, they, they just turn right. those guys out over and over and over again. It's really cool.
1: Now I did I did notice that the the twins are suffering a little bit. Ian, have you noticed that at all?
0: yeah yeah tell me what else you saw that you liked or or didn't like <laughs> well looking at text round a little
1: bit I was looking at the Barons and the uh, the King Air 350s and, and sort of that lineup the King Air c90 to 250 to 350 and the Baron together you're only looking at about 23 units that were sold in this third quarter mm. that doesn't seem like a lot to me so I'm, I'm if I you know spread it out and say well okay that quarter is like four months it's 23 units is about five a month or so. Yeah, You know, I'm thinking that, that that's not real high, especially compared to to the heyday of aviation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Absolutely.
1: I did notice that, as you mentioned earlier, uh, just a few minutes ago, I did notice that that Piper has started to really crank out the PA-28s, the 181 series, the Archer three. 34 mm-hmm. of those guys have been um, delivered in this third quarter, and that is, that is actually just in line with what, with what Simon Caldicott told us earlier, it, he told us that at uh, Sun and Fun and also reiterated at, at AirVenture, they basically were, were, were throwing down the gauntlet versus Textron to try to get the trainer market a little bit more under control for, for uh, Piper folks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing number, 34 and one quarter. I mean, if you look just a couple of years ago, that number would have been you know maybe zero, maybe two, maybe five. So that's a just a massive improvement. And I, I tell you what, it's really interesting about that. And I think that other manufacturers could um, really take something away from this is, you know, Simon, and as he's been very clear about, they had a focus on that training market, and they put the effort into sales. Um, they just, yeah. you know, it's kind of the hard work of sales, and, it, and it's totally paid off for them. So uh, they they earned it, man.
1: And speaking of paying off, you and know, I were talking about this a little bit before when we were doing our podcast notes. The Icon Aircraft folks, they have delivered 12 of these Twelve of the Icon A5s in this quarter. Now that's that's significantly ramped up mm-hmm. from the one that was delivered in quarter two and the four that were delivered in quarter one. Now, what do you make of this, Ian?
0: Well, um, it's good, right? Uh, they're trending up. Uh, I think that's a good thing. It, it's still, I would say, not nearly as good as they want it to be. You know, they're hoping to produce a lot more airplanes than this. They've got a huge backlog. Uh, if their you know numbers are to be believed, and if people actually start to put down real money for them. So, yeah, I think that they've got a ways to go. So it's good, but it's it's not it's not where they need to be. So they've got some work to do.
1: Right. They do. And uh, it's a cool aircraft. It's really interesting. We saw one up here over at AOPA headquarters. Dave Hirschman flew one across the country which is actually uh, the subject of the uh, of AOPA live last week. and I got to sit in it and, I, and now I get it. I once I sat in it in the aircraft, now I understand the allure of it. You know, it's an amphibious model so you can land on a runway or in the water and uh, and it's stone cold simple and it looks real sleek on the interior. It's very much like a BMW or something like that. and um, I see the appeal of that aircraft yeah. But um, I do think it's going to be hard to kick those out the door and, and keep the numbers up before people are very, very disappointed that it's taken so long to get into their hands.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When you look at it like a second, third airplane, like a lot of people are probably buying them, it's like you, you know, you're only gonna, you're only gonna wait so long, and you're only gonna, you know, the longer you wait, and of course, as the price continues to climb, uh, that's the, you know, that's that's not good. So, a couple of things I saw that were kind of interesting. The Cirrus numbers, while overall I think pretty strong. You know, they um, they delivered 106 units in the third quarter. They delivered 16 jets, which is awesome. That just continues to climb. The SR-22 was doing really well. They were down to 40 units uh, on the turbo models, but up to 41 on the non-turbos. The 20 tailed off a little bit, which I thought was interesting. You know, they they market the 20 as a training aircraft. And um when you think about how hot the training market is right now, I think to go down to nine units um is, is kinda interesting. So we'll have to see how that trends. And
1: it went down to nine from uh, from twenty six in the quarter before. So that's notable. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. The other thing, and this is a little more in the weeds, is um the TBMs. Now the you know, the TBM now you can get two choices. You can get the nine ten or the nine thirty. And literally the only difference there is the panel. It's the G1000 versus the 3000. And when this first was introduced in last year, they were saying, oh, well, um, it's looking like customers are going 50-50. So, they, you know, half the orders were for the 930, half were the, for the 910. Now, this year, though, looking at the trends, it's much heavier on the 910, on the G1000 model, they're, they're um, selling they've sold 20 or shipped I should say 21 of those this year versus 12 of the 930s
1: that's interesting and uh, you took a pretty deep dive to check into that Ian I'm impressed yeah
0: <laughs> well um, and I think what's um, what's most interesting about that is they the you know if you if you think about the kind of customer that would be in that airplane you know the g1000 they I think they have said in the past or people have maybe assumed in the past that most of the G1000 customers are TBM customers who are used to the G1000 coming up through the G1000. So they say, okay, I just want the newest TBM. I don't want to learn a new avionics package. Just give me the 910 with the G1000. Whereas the 930 customers are maybe people who are looking at jets or um, other turboprops or something like that. And they, and they're looking for the most recent panel. So it is kind of interesting to see how maybe people are opting for that G1000. So I don't know if that shows that TBM is produce, is, is just um, doing a really good job selling to its current customers and not so good um, taking them from other manufacturers. Or maybe it's the NXI. Maybe that with the NXI, people are saying, ah, G1000 is good enough for me, and they're going with it. So uh, that's kind of interesting.
1: It is. It is. I'm glad you took a, a, a good look at that, and that, that G1000 is a really nice unit, and yeah. I've flown behind a G five hundred before, but not quite mm-hmm. the one thousand yet. So, yeah, I got a lot to learn myself.
0: So yeah, um, you know, we'll be real, real curious to see what they do year end um, with the Gamma numbers. But uh, overall, looking really good.
1: Yeah, I agree. i good news. Good news on the uh, on the aircraft uh, shipment record uh, report from Gamma. So, so that's good. We'll keep an eye on that.
0: Yeah. Um, So I want to finish with two things that I I think most people in aviation right now we're talking about. Um, It's kind of the big news. Now, they're not necessarily light GA focused, but I I think there are lessons here for GA. First, let's talk about the Lion Air crash. You know, this is the 737 MAX that went down in Indonesia. And as as we learn more, it, it gets kind of more and more interesting, more and more troubling, more and more questions, I think, that come out about both mechanical failures and then kind of how pilots deal with them. So the latest is they were saying, you know, that the, the flight before the accident flight, there were some problems. And I guess the investigators thought that maybe the current, the accident flight, the airplane wasn't airworthy. Well, now they're saying, no, 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 no. As far as we know, well, we, what we, actually what they're saying is that we haven't said yet if the airplane was airworthy or not. But they know that um, there was a mechanical on the previous flight that caused the airplane to not be airworthy.
1: So what was troubling to me, Ian, was the fact, um, not so much what you're talking about, but uh, a little bit more of the training and the systems that were involved. And I was very surprised to to know that, well, first of all, I read that the stick shaker activated uh, constantly because of a sensor failure. Now, I understand a sensor failure. Even when we go flying, we check the pitot tube, uh, you know, that kind of thing, and that's a normal walk-around item. But on a jet like that, you know, so much of it is internal, so much of it is software, and so much of it is is sort of a mystery item. And um, I'm a little troubled by the fact that, uh, and I don't want to point fingers at the manufacturer, but if there was a significant change to the systems in the manufacturing, installation, or, uh, or deployment, and then there really was, wasn't a corresponding training uh, session or, or update for the POH, which is common to update a POH when, when there's a major Uh, shift like that, then that to me is very troubling.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It it really is. And I think they're going to have to get to the bottom of that in terms of, you know, there's lots of questions being asked about, well, was FAA when they certified it aware of that? And if they were, why did they let it go forward without an AFM, you know, a flight manual update, like you said, it is, it is interesting. I think, you know, the other thing that's interesting about this is we see so few accidents as a result of mechanical problems, especially when you're talking about transport category. That, you know, when it does happen, there, there are, you get to really look into the analysis of, of why and, and how the pilots dealt with it. And here, you know, there was some, I think, initial uh, skepticism about the, the pilot's ability. But when you consider what was probably going on in that airplane and when they said they fought it for, like, more than whatever it was, it was minute after minute. You know, you consider in your own head, it's like, okay, what would I do in that situation? And it's like, well, I got a runaway trim, so the flight controls are already fighting me. I've got major altitude deviations. Uh, I'm close to the ground. Uh, And then, you know, so I've probably got some kind of oral alert going off. I don't know. They haven't found the cockpit voice recorder, so we'll find out about that. Um, But then you add in that shaker, and it's like to have the presence of mind to be able to pull the breaker on the autopilot to say, okay, with with all these things going on, um i need to pull the autopilot breaker i mean that that um it's a bit of a leap i'm not sure that i you know even after training and everything that i would have had the presence of mind to do something like that
1: well you bring up a good point and i was uh again when we were preparing for the podcast we were chatting a little bit about this and when i was getting checked out in the cessna 182 which does have an autopilot and then dave hersen my instructor the first thing he did was show me where the circuit breaker was for that and also on the rv12 that we have and we have a uh, one that's on the line for training and um, and getting checked out in that uh, first thing I learned was where the disconnect was and where the basically where the um, fuse was for that to pull autopilot so which is a similar type setup, but now here's the thing that I don't know since I'm not a you know, 737 Max pilot, is that you know is there a way to defeat this besides what they were already doing? I mean and that to me is a big question mark.
0: Yeah, it is a question. Now, Avweb had a story that said. Um that on the previous flight when the same system uh well presumably the same system malfunctioned it was an aoa indicator actually um that the pilots had did have the presence of mind to disconnect the autopilot at least temporarily it's a little unclear whether there was like a breaker or um like a maybe a control wheel steering switch or or something like that but it it's uh yeah it is it is i think going to be an interesting accident and i wouldn't be surprised if there's some you know, sort of worldwide uh, training that's implemented as a result of it, or at least learn from it. And and I think at GA we can learn. You know, autopilot uh, is is something that we we really don't do a lot of training about, and uh, and I think we should do a lot more because we can have some of the same kinds of problems.
1: It's sort of an afterthought, if if you will, just to pick up on your train of thought on the autopilot training aspect of it. That at least you know, for a lot of us. And you're right, it would be behoove us to know a lot more about the autopilot. And in fact, having an autopilot was a was a huge help to me yesterday flying back in really strong wind conditions from North Carolina and uh, and going actually got routed through the class Bravo airspace over here over the D C area through the CIFRA, which was cool. But the autopilot was extremely helpful for that Ian, because it kept me on course to the, uh, the correct heading and the, and the correct waypoints that, um, that Potomac was heading me towards. And I think that, you know, I did a little bit of hand flying in there too, but having an autopilot, it raised the comfort level for me. And this was a, a VFR day, you know. I think that a lot of aircraft owners might concur with the view that some of the legacy autopilots, although they work well when they work, are, you know, at this time, it's probably, you know, time to look at some newer technology
0: definitely um so the other accident and this is this is you know uh, outside of the fixed wing community is getting a lot of attention um this is the uh leonardo the aw 169 that crashed over in um, in britain a couple of weeks ago uh on board it's got a lot of publicity in part because there was video also because the owner of the leicester city football team uh well, soccer team was on board soccer
1: us, football to them
0: Yep, yep. And uh this was a fatal, multiple people on board uh, and everybody everybody passed unfortunately. And and um what happened is the the video shows the helicopter do they had landed inside the stadium to pick up the owner. They had done, you know, max performance takeoff, so vertical takeoff just right up above the stadium and we it looked like in the video kind of transitioning to forward flight. And so it's apparently what happened and what they're looking at now is a tail rotor failure essentially what happened is the pilot pushed the pedal one way they found and the tail rotor actually, um, didn't respond and, and started to go the other direction. So, um, as a result of this, EASA, uh, put out a, uh, an emergency AD to look at the, uh, tail rotor actuator servos, but it's, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff that comes out of this, whether it was, um, just a straight tail rotor failure and, and, you know, we kind of move on or whether, there's, um, they look at some of the mechanical issues that go into it. Um, so I, it's um, a lot more to learn about this one as well.
1: Well, and, and I know you're a, a pretty experienced helicopter pilot. I've only had a few hours in a helicopter, you know, lesson wise. But okay, on a takeoff at a low forward speed, you're looking at, I mean, a high torque environment. Obviously at that mm-hmm. point, and you're looking at probably you know full power. there there were you know a handful of folks on board the aircraft, even though it's a powerful aircraft, a powerful helicopter, you got a lot of forces are, you know reacting on you. yeah so, so any kind of small little deviation or something that's not right is gonna most likely be magnified, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, so they um, you know they do train for tail rotor failures. But that training uh, happens most of the time at at forward, you know, sort of a cruise airspeed because, and I always wondered this before I started training. It's like, why do helicopters even have vertical and horizontal stabilizers? It's like they don't, they've got a tail rotor, you know. It's like, why do they need them? Well, and the reason is because um, those stabilizers actually help uh, the tail rotor. And if the tail rotor fails, they are effective above a certain airspeed. Oh, is
1: that right? So to keep the aircraft tracking straight. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. And so they, they train you basically to do... In the event of a tail rotor failure, to essentially keep your speed up uh, and and use those stabilizers. And so, if the tail rotor fails while they're in a hover position or close to it, uh, yeah, man, that that's that's bad news. Really bad news.
1: Well, the thing that I was looking up, you know, a little bit of history here on on the aircraft is that the um, the Italian government just bought twenty two of these AW one sixty nines, and that that's a significant purchase for. The Italian government and basically the security, you know, arm of the Italian government bought that. So I'm not sure what that means, uh, in long run, no, long range, but it hasn't uh, steered them in another direction. But this is again is something they're going to have to keep an eye on, especially with that actuator as things move forward.
0: Yeah, so they'll they'll get reports, I think, out of how many. How many were damaged uh, or are damaged as a result of all these inspections, and that will be really interesting to see. Now, it's it's worth noting uh, the FAA has not adopted the same emergency AD as far as I know. So, um, so so far it's just contained to EASA.
1: Well, and that is interesting to uh, to think about Ian, because they there are quite a few of these flying around in the states as well. So, I mean, how does that mm-hmm. even work if if the FAA doesn't doesn't address it, you know. Like what happens? I mean, you can still fly them here in the USA without that kind of inspection.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Interesting. So, it is. Well, they
1: well going back to the Gamma numbers real quick. they they, uh, they sold sixteen of the one thirty nines and uh, and uh, four looks like uh, maybe four of the one sixty nines and mm. a handful of the one eighty nines too. So yeah. so that that kind of model is out there.
0: Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, let's, um, let's talk about the past a bit. Let's, uh, let's bring on Tom. Like you mentioned, he's our unofficial historian here at AOPA. And he's been involved in this AOPA book project for most of the year now. Um, and he's got, as a result, some really cool insights into the history of uh, AOPA and general aviation. And uh, we had a great time chatting with him. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to to talk about this book. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's really been a uh, about what about an eight or nine month epic journey
2: through AOPA's history. Yeah, and putting it on the page.
0: So this is a role that you you've had before. Um, you are sort of our unofficial historian. Um, how how did this come about? Tell me how you started writing about AOPA's history. Uh, it started in 1989.
2: And uh, that was AOPA's 50th anniversary year. So we knew uh, that we had to acknowledge that in a big way in print. And so the it turned out being the October 89 issue that covered uh, AOPA's first 50 years. And so I suppose I volunteered. It's been quite a while now, I think uh, that I had a, a background in history. I, I took a lot of it in college and Grad school, and so um, we were fortunate back then to have Doc Hartranft still with us. And so I began by uh, interviewing him at length, and then going around the building and trying to gather together what historical documents we had. Yeah. Okay, which were pretty slim pickings. I gotta say, I was I was surprised and a little concerned having volunteered to do this and then finding little to go on Um, doc was good for anecdotal background but we were able to to get a fair amount of uh, detailed documents for i'd say the first 20 years up until the uh, 1960s and then our uh, number of documents and photos dropped off precipitously after that and i don't know what to attribute that to, except that uh, they were keeping records of their communications in a classic way, the way they taught back then, which was carbon copies on onion skin paper uh, kept in folders by month. And you could see everything that uh, back then, Doc did um, as AOPA's first employee reporting to Abby Wolf and the Sharpless brothers and John Story Smith and, and C.T. Luddington, who were the founders, he reported to them. He was AOPA's only employee, but he kept good records. So you could see the negotiations going on and some of the background information in those very early days. And that was exciting to, to come across that. Even telegrams, you know, telegrams were a big thing back then. Long-distance phone calls were... Uh, prohibitively expensive. And uh, if you wanted to get the word out quickly, it was a telegram. And we saw telegrams in there from Doc to our, uh, we had units, we had chapters back then. And he he would send out uh, this telegram right after Pearl Harbor telling people, telling all the members to go get fingerprinted because after Pearl Harbor, all pilots had to be uh, documented and fingerprinted per Federal order, so there was
0: the telegrams for it. Hmm. And so you mentioned, you know, you you took some history classes and have an interest in it, and some of that stems, I think, from from your own personal family background. Um, You got started in aviation in in part because uh, your dad and and your grandfather were in it. That's true. That's true. My father was in the uh, then
2: U.S. Army Air Corps from 1942 to 1947, and participated in World War II. Init- his combat tour was in uh, Africa, Sicily, and Italy, basically dropping rangers behind lines prior to invasions of uh, uh, Sicily and Italy and North Africa. And my grandfather was in World War I, and he w- was trained as a pilot, but by the time he was uh, commissioned as a pilot, the war was over. So it affected him, and so my dad's background affected me. And so, yeah, this is a strong family yeah, background
0: wow. there. And so uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the, some of the documents you use, the source documents. I think a lot of folks would be surprised to know that AOPA uh, does keep those in, in kind of a unique way and a unique facility. So, um, so w- when you started the research for this book, what are some of the ways that you kind of resource those documents?
2: Okay. Um, <clears throat> what I did was uh, I asked around the building— Uh, if anybody knew where uh, archival information might be, and I was told to head down to the marketing department uh, on the first floor here, and uh, they pointed at a a tall metal filing cabinet and said, it's in there. And uh, it it had two big doors, and I opened it, and there it was. It was on the bottom of the filing cabinet. The shelves had fallen through, and all the... uh, Papers and such were just laying in a big layer, like a geologic layer, at the bottom. And I had to go through it all. And so that's where it started. That's where the documents that we had existed. After I was done using them to uh, generate the 50th history, the decision was made to put these documents in trust with the Hagley Museum in Wilmington, Delaware, which keeps track of, and stores, and archives, corporations' histories. And so we deeded all that over to Hagley for safekeeping, including the the certificates of incorporation, the ledgers that were the handwritten entries of all the first, I think, 20,000 members are in, entered by hand. And that's in the book too, by the way, you can see that. So we made trips to Hagley uh, they wouldn't let us have the photos, so we've shot the photos there, and we did get some documents, and we brought them back to AOPA headquarters here where I used it to um, help round out some portions from the from the earlier history and also to get artwork for the book.
1: Hey, Ian, uh, Dave Tillis here chiming in. I was going to ask Tom if, uh, if he could give us the one unique, Piece of, uh, of equipment or trinket or tchotchke that he came across that just really surprised him? Um,
2: there were several. I think a lot of them were, <laughs> well, one was some prototype wing designs that we came up with in the very beginning. Uh, you know, the wings, the AOPA's corporate logo, and, and all the stuff we hand out, t shirts and such. And it was interesting to see several companies were vying for our business. And some of them were some pretty strange-looking wings. And uh, we, we, some of them looked uh, very, uh, what, severe, let's say. But we settled on the droopy wings because uh, we didn't want to confuse our AOPA wings with actual military wings that uh, military pilots would wear. And yet we wanted to have a classic look, so we adopted that droopy wing look which was really kind of picked up from the RAF wings. So it helped show a little solidarity with uh, England at that time. We were not in World War II yet, but by the end of 1939, Britain was involved in, in the war and all through uh, 1940. So, so yeah, we picked, picking the wings, that was one. They had a lot of other logos and you know gizmos that they were giving away you know like license plate badges and things like that so tchotchkes, yeah i have to think about it a little bit but the wings stand out yeah there was a fair amount of debate having to do with heraldry and the banner across the shield which direction it went that sort of thing
0: so for those folks who who might not know give us some um, give us a, a quick the quick kind of origin story of AOPA what um how did it come about
2: Oh, uh, well, there were five Philadelphia lawyers who had their own planes and uh, belonged to a flying club, and they would go on these outings uh, on the weekends, their version of a $100 hamburger ride. Uh, And uh, on one flight, uh, one flight was to an island in the St. Lawrence River up near the uh, Canadian border in Quebec. And so uh, they met up with Ed Noble at uh, this Lodge, they ended up uh, landing near, and uh, he was an official in the CAA, Civil Aeronautics Authority, uh, at the time, uh, the forerunner of the FAA. So they're, in their discussions, they came up with this notion that uh, the airlines were getting their way, and uh, why was that? And uh, the reason was that they presented their arguments in a organized way, a very professional way, to the... CAA, and usually got their way. Whereas if private pilots or civilian pilots, general aviation pilots, approached the CAA, they came off as kind of uh, oddball, kooky, disorganized types who are not to be taken seriously. So the five founders felt that it was very important for general aviation to have a professional organization that would advance the causes of general aviation. And that's really what it came from. And And Noble was instrumental in pointing that out, you know, that there was, in fact, a deficiency there at at the lobbying level. So this got AOPA going as a, a lobbying organization. And that it continues to this day. We're principally and uh, a member service and advocacy uh, organization for general aviation. So that's kind of how it started. The, the founders got together and decided that they would m- make this organization up. And um, then they began to get to a strategy together to bring more members in, start the membership as a, for, for all practical purposes which involved striking a deal with Popular Aviation magazine so that we could get some publicity for our cause, and that's how we had an insert in Popular Aviation, which ironically later became Flying Magazine, and AOPA had a section within, a demographic section uh, within that uh, magazine that went only to AOPA members that contained this section. That's basically the very, very beginning, and then they would go around to... all the air shows and all the aviation events and just sign up members one-on-one. You've seen a bunch of
1: different publications at AOPA in your years here, Tom. And uh, you just mentioned that we started uh, publishing basically in, uh, you said, popular aviation and then went to flying. And we started when we started our own with AOPA Pilot, which still continues to this day, the magazine, and also we have flight training, but now there was another publication that, that you Road herd over remember what that was
2: ultralight pilot Uh uh-huh ultralight pilot was well by the early 80s well late 70s people began to be concerned about the pilot population okay this is where you started to see the first hint of a decline and uh, coincidentally hang gliding became a popular uh, sport So it didn't take long for some guys to attach an engine to a hang glider and extend his glide. And these became, long story short, ultralights, and it was basically unregulated. And uh, we were hoping, AOPA took an interest right away. We thought, well, these guys, they'll get tired of flying around in, uh, you know, 25-horsepower engines doing 50 knots and want to get into a Cessna 150 or something like that. So we formed uh, an ultralight division, and it got had its own magazine, and so I headed it up. Yeah, I've
1: seen the uh, I've seen the sign for Ultralight Magazine hanging around in your old office there from time to time. The
2: sign is there, and there's still some sets of ultralight pilot magazines around. I got to our strategy was to build them, okay, because these were all kits. And we'd build them, and then we'd fly them, and then we'd report the unvarnished truth about how long it took to build them. They'd say 20 hours. We've, our rule of thumb was double that. And, uh, and we worked with A&Ps, and then we'd fly the thing. And uh, there were some pretty sketchy designs, but there were also some pretty nice ones, too.
1: So you flew ultralights, and uh, I was flying with you yesterday in a King Air 350. So, so you've flown a lot in between.
2: yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I've been very fortunate over the years to fly, I don't know how many, several hundred uh, different types of airplanes, but the ultralights stand out for, uh, you know, talk about wind in the hair. A lot of experiences, you know, several engine failures. So then I got into the turbine planes, which I was always interested in concurrently with the ultralights. You know, a lot of people just didn't want to be involved with ultralights, even internally here. But we recognized that it was a potential pathway for building the pilot population. Did it work? I don't know. It got some bad publicity. We thought ultralight flying would model itself on the U.S. Hang Lighting Association's hang system, which basically self-regulated uh, proficiency levels that you could... That you had to have for flying under certain conditions. Like a hang one rating was just running down a hill and going straight ahead. And a hang four was like top of a mountain, soaring for an extended period of time in, you know, more challenging weather. But it didn't turn out that way. AOPA did have a registration program for ultralight pilots, okay, which didn't exist before. And we worked with the FAA sharing accident information, we had safety courses we taught, and uh, we had an accident database. So that was written up in AOPA, AOPA's ultralight pilot also. So it was a very fertile time. It, was, uh, it, it got a lot of younger people involved in, in uh, general aviation, but they didn't seem to want to move up the ranks, so to speak, the way we kind of had a preconceived notion they would.
0: So, Tom, um, you've been through the entire 80-year history. Uh, you've written it, obviously. Um, I haven't been here that long <laughs> <yet. I've laughs> Um You know, AOP has been involved in a ton of things over the years. I mean, uh, everything from 9-11 to MEGS to transponders, airspace, everything else. What do you think is the single biggest accomplishment of AOPA?
2: It's maturation as a lobbying organization and uh, a voice for advocacy it's got a good deal of respect on Capitol Hill, and uh, we've been very effective at mobilizing our, our membership to write in, call in, and exert pressure on lawmakers whenever we were faced with challenges like user fees or a denial of services or uh, landing fees, um, these airport threats like what's going on now with Santa Monica, not such a good outcome with MIGs but uh, good outcomes at the local level through our uh, airport support network to keep uh, developers from building tall structures near airports. That's a great accomplishment at the local level and national level that really started to pick up steam in the uh, late 70s, I would say, uh, and and
0: continues today. Okay. So let me put you on the spot. Not all of those battles were won. You mentioned Megs. Where do you think we had our biggest setback? Which issue?
2: Um, I think our biggest, I won't call it a setback, would be post 9-11 with the uh, airspace that there were a lot of factions within the security community that wanted to basically end VFR flying. And uh, so I think that challenge was uh, our biggest short-term setback. Some of these airports you mentioned, MIGs, yeah, that was a big one. Uh, Santa Monica is not looking too good, although we're doing our best there with the recent uh, shortening of the runway there. Uh, But I would say the biggest one was uh, post-9-11 and also the user fee battles, which we ended up prevailing. But at the time, it seemed very um, urgent and very critical. Uh, And that would be in the 1990s under, under Phil Boyer's uh, administration as president here.
0: So obviously one reason that we, we write about history and that we study history is to inform us about things moving forward. So uh, when, you, when you look at, at our past and at General Aviation's past, what do you think, based on what you've seen and, and read and studied, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge going forward? Well, the biggest challenge is going to be to build up
2: the uh, General Aviation pilot population, for uh, any number of reasons, I, I think we don't have a very good, honestly, uh, I don't think uh, AOPA or anybody really has a good handle on why this is happening, why uh, there's an apparently a cultural shift that is uh, preventing pilots from uh, taking up uh, general aviation flying. Uh, so I think when you look at a 200,000 pilot population drop since 1980, that's a pretty big challenge in the future. So we're doing everything we can to kind of reverse that. What with the outreach that we're doing now, with the regional fly-ins, reaching a whole new sector of, of the potential pilot community, with getting people who are out of flying back into flying, Uh, But it's still a huge, huge challenge. I don't know how you make up a uh, 200,000 pilot shortfall in a short period of time, but it it, it won't be a short period of time. So I think that's the big one going forward. And I don't think any, there's a lot of theories about what's causing it. Kids, uh, younger people um, don't seem to be drawn to it. the the way they were, say, well, 80 years ago. Uh, In terms of historical perspective, um, there's a lot of cultural influences that once prevailed that no longer do, and we really need to explore that, not just for aviation purposes, but in general. Like, you know, let's go back to the 1930s, which is a, a subject of a, the first chapter in uh, the the upcoming 80th anniversary book, um, people were entranced by uh, aviation. They had air races. They had uh, these very flamboyant characters, and it was followed in newspapers and radio. And it was a common. It was very prevalent. It was a, a, a cultural theme. Kids were entranced by it. They built balsa wood models. They, you could subscribe to magazines about flying, and everybody – it was all new and exciting, okay? Well, you don't have that kind of enthusiasm anymore, and uh, we need to look into it a little deeper, everybody. I don't just mean AOPA. I mean EAA, NBAA, all the other interest groups need to um, – take a deep dive and find out what's what's gone wrong. I was reading, um, I mean, is it that helicopter parents are exposing their children to uh, their concerns about a a threatening world outside that they must be protected from? And so the kids begin to inculcate this notion of uh, any kind of risky activity as da- uh, danger which it is um, but they are risk-averse okay is it that they're just becoming sedentary
1: they or they might be they might be more enthralled with their computer games and less interactivity uh, physically with uh, other people or other things
2: yes there's been there's certainly less physical activity um, I was reading uh, Rick Atkinson's book uh, about the Second World War and his first book book of that three-part series. is called An Army at Dawn. And he talked about the typical recruit. The average recruit was 5'8", and he weighed 140 pounds. Okay? That was our army. You know, not, not every one of them, of course. But now, look, you know, the, your body type has totally changed, in the, especially beginning with the 1980s. But also, you know, the activity um, and the, the kinds of activities that kids were involved in. Um, it's all gone down. Uh, I mean, Boy Scouts, okay?
1: True. E- Eagle, the Eagle Scout program. Eagle which is, Scouts. You got uh, Explorer Scouts, but it's not as it's not, not so as much. not much. as there's not there's not as much awareness of that as there used to be in, yeah. back in the day.
2: Now you might have a camping merit badge or an aviation merit badge. Now you've got something to do with consumer electronics merit <laughs> yeah, badge. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's not just it's people's tolerance. For activity, okay, right. We're losing people playing golf. It's off by a third. Uh, this sort of thing. So it's not just uh, general aviation. Do you
1: think it might be a little bit of the hero aspect? You know, back talking about bringing it back to GA. Uh, back in the '60s, '70s, you had astronauts. You had a lot of NASA yeah. programs. Yeah. Spinning ahead to golf, you had Tiger Woods phenomenon, Phil Mickelson, and uh, and now they're older. They kind of are aging out of that a little bit. So you kind of have the same kind of similar dynamics going on. Yeah. Plus,
2: they just don't want to spend four hours walking around. Right, I right. I mean, they, they've lost their tolerance for concentration. True, true. So, you know, they, how much better to spend uh, your day with uh, an Xbox right. and, you know, fight a virtual war or fly a virtual airplane and say that you were at the controls of a, uh, an F-18 uh, vicariously instead of signing up committing to five years, maybe washing out, to your disgrace, and, and never getting into the kind of plane that you can so easily get by going down to Best Buy and, and getting a software package. I don't know, but we need to, to look at that. We're, we're doing a lot to expose uh, younger people to, to general aviation, to get them physically involved in the cockpit, up close and personal with, with aircraft, And we put a lot of energy into it with other organizations. But so far, I think it's um, had modest success, but nothing that's going to reverse this 200,000 pilot deficit that we've got today compared to uh, 1980, which was the high watermark with 800,000 pilots. Today, it's down around 600 and change. And I don't know how you turn that around.
1: Well, people are also the Boeing folks have told us that people are also traveling more and uh, other markets are emerging in the Middle East and in Asia. So you have more people traveling, you have less pilots able to carry them on their travels, and then you have the higher cost of aviation and actually just as a student trying to learn 150 to 200 dollars an hour to, uh, to get your lessons under your belt is a little bit cost prohibitive to a lot of people.
2: Yeah. Maybe the model will change. I mean, if they don't come up from self-financing their flight training, uh, the model will change to the way uh, some of the European airlines and others do, where they just uh, seek out people who have no aviation background and train them ab initio from the ground up uh, and then put them in the the right seat of a 737 or or bigger plane for career purposes. And they learn for career purposes and not for recreational purposes. But I don't think it's money's not the only reason. There's a lot of yachts out there and they cost every bit and, and more than the nicest corporate jet, let's say. And yet when you fly down over South Florida, the marinas are full of yachts and, uh, so it's it's not the money, I don't think.
0: Well, Tom, I guess we'll uh, we'll have to have you on in twenty years when you do a uh, version two for the hundredth. Ian, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sound too excited. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, listen, we're talking about the hundred a hundred years. We we just finished the eightieth, and now we're having a meeting. I, I just got a meeting request, and we're going to talk about the May issue. Yes, where we
0: do what? Talk about the eightieth anniversary again? So so there yeah. it is <laughs> alright Tom well thanks so much for the time and um, and uh, thank you for doing the book I, I think it's a, it's a great book and I, I hope people enjoy it thanks Ian but it wasn't just me it
2: was the whole uh, media staff that, that pitched in and uh, helped uh, sort out the photography uh, write the sidebars it's not just straight history but there's a lot of sidebars in there that include a lot of interesting things over the years uh, so it's not just AOPA's history it's it's general aviation history and it's well it brings in world war ii and the civilian pilot training program and it talks about the post-war boom and there's a lot of airplanes in it as well so i had a lot of help
1: glad to see the book came together and i'm real excited to order mine today
2: me too i'm looking forward to seeing it as well <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i I'm, I'm excited to see it well thanks guys appreciate it have a good uh, have a good holiday yeah, David had a great time chatting with uh, Tom, and it's a it's a cool book, and I'm really excited for people to to get to have it in their hands real soon.
1: yeah, Freedom to fly, the Witness to history. And uh, you know, he spent so much time on that. There were some cool stories he had behind the scenes. And also, I like the fact that uh, Tom has a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good background on what we could do to make aviation more appealing to the next generation. I think that's an interesting thing, too. And we have to keep our eyes on the future as well. While we look back, we have to look to the future as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen,
1: And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. And we're on iTunes and on the Sporty Takeoff app.
0: All right. See you next time, David. See you again. Thanks. Hangar Talk from
1: AOPA. Your freedom to fly.